Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Last week we were able to do a little overview of John chapter 1 through 2, where we have come thus far in eight sermons. And now we dive into our ninth part, our ninth sermon in John. And we enter into a section that is familiar to most of us, if not all of us. And I do believe that familiarity breeds contempt. And I, I hope and I pray, we're going to take our time going through this section of Scripture, and I hope and I pray as we do, your eyes, our eyes together as a congregation would be open to see things that maybe we had never seen before, to understand this passage anew and afresh. This passage is about our salvation. This passage is about regeneration. This passage is crucial to understanding how God has saved us. We need to know this passage. As I thought about the reasons why, and I listed out nine of them as I was thinking, why should we be studying this passage? I want to just give you three of them, and three of them based on this week, just this week in my life, three things have happened that have reminded me yet again, we need to understand what the new birth is, what it means to be born again. So, number one, just by way of introduction to this section, number one, I, um, some of you know our, our roof is uh, very bad, <laughs> and it leaks when it rains, and so uh, we've been um, calling roofers of all ages to our house to see who would be kind enough to give us a good deal. And as we have been calling them, I always say, hi, my name is Patrick, and uh, greet them, give them something to drink. We sit down at the table, I go up on the roof with them, we look at everything, and uh, we talk, and I just share, I'm a pastor, this is what I do, I invite them to church, I try as much as I can to share the gospel. I did share the gospel with the first roofer that came, and he never called me back, so I don't know if that's why. Um, But I was talking with a roofer this week. And he said, oh, you're a pastor. That's great. He said, I myself am a born-again Christian. Which I have no reason to doubt this man's heart. No reason whatsoever. It's not a judgment statement on him or his heart. But it is an observation that born-again has become just an adjective to the type of Christian you can be. As if, in that statement, there's a possibility that you might be a non-born-again Christian. Um, we take this in evangelicalism and we run this miles where it's not supposed to go. There are books, you can read books, you could find them on Amazon with the title literally, How to Be Born Again, um, which misses the entire point of this passage. You cannot do that yourself. They'll give you steps. If you want to be born again, these are the steps you must take which is a misrepresentation of this passage altogether. The point of this passage points us to the reality that we contribute nothing to being born again. Jesus uses a physical analogy of your birth, our birth as humans, and our birth as humans, what did you contribute to your birth? We could say nothing, and I'm sure all the mothers would say no. Uh, They contributed pain and pressure and just nine months of blech. Um, but the reality is, what did you offer 
in being born? How did you aid to the fact that you are here in existence? That's Jesus's point. Just as much as you and I had absolutely nothing to do in contributing to our physical birth, so too we have nothing to do with contributing to our spiritual birth. That's the point of this passage. New birth happens to us. It does not happen by us. It happens from somebody else and we receive it from someone else. That's a word in theology called regeneration. Regeneration is the second step in God's salvation process. The first step is election, that God elects and he calls and he chooses, and then whom he chooses, he regenerates. But election and and predestination, obviously, those are hot-button issues. And the reality is you don't have to understand election or predestination to be saved. You don't even have to believe in election and predestination to be saved. You don't. But you must understand and you must believe in the reality of regeneration in the new birth to be saved. You cannot, under, you cannot not understand and not have the reality of regeneration happen to you and be saved. So born-again Christian, that's just who we are. We don't need it as an adjective for what type of Christian we are. If you are saved, you have been born again. And if you have not been born again, then you cannot be saved. You are not saved. Number two read an article this week. I'm sure you guys have heard about it. Pope Francis, this is a quote, is giving all priests a window of discretion to forgive women who have had abortions. The window is during the upcoming holy year, which will begin in December. So from December 8th, 2015 through November 20th of 2016, women who have had abortions can be forgiven. Meaning, outside of that window, I don't think they can be. And I would have to look into that more, but that seems to be the inference that I'm getting from that. Um, There is some strange reality in Catholicism, and you know it, where forgiveness has to be handed down through priests and through even the Pope. And um, human agents forgive you. They do things, and then you do things in return. You have to go to them. They absolve you of everything, and then you have to do things for that to be confirmed, whether praying prayers or doing things. It's the same idea of how are we to be born again, and let me give you five steps in in which you're to be born again. Do these five things, and you'll be born again. Similar to a, a Catholic mindset of giving the power to humans to be able to earn God's favor or work um, in such a way that we can earn forgiveness. If I had the opportunity to meet the Pope, you guys ever play that game with uh, your friends where you think, if you could have lunch with anybody in the world, who would it be? Um, Every once in a while, it would be the Pope for me. I'd love to talk with the Pope. And if I had an opportunity to talk with the Pope, I would go to John 3 and evangelize the Pope from this section of Scripture because this is so clear on how one is saved that I think it would be helpful and clarifying to the Pope. Um, We're going to see... As we walk through this, the new birth is not a work of man. We cannot do anything. No human can make it happen. No preacher can make it happen. No writer can cause it to happen. You can't make it happen to yourself. God alone will make it happen to you. And then finally, number three, as I've been studying this, a reason for studying it is that the new birth just clearly is far more glorious than than we think it is. If you've been born again, I can guarantee you that you do not understand and appreciate your new birth the way that you should. 
I don't understand and appreciate my new birth the way that I should. So when we think about the new birth and we go, I've already been saved. God has already saved me. The new birth has already happened in my life. It would be very easy to say, let's move on to something that I don't know. And the reality is I don't think we know this. I think we don't understand the full implications of who God is and of what he has done in our lives to bring about the new birth. This is an amazing subject that is so far more grand than we could possibly comprehend. And as we think through what God has done in order for the new birth to take place in our lives and in our hearts, the further we dive into the glory of Calvary and the further we dive into what Jesus has done on our behalf, the more we will praise him and the more it will transform our lives. Studying the truth of God's love towards us will enable us to treasure him more. If you've ever thought, I'm, I'm pretty hot stuff. I've got it all together. If you've ever thought, at, at least I'm doing better than that person over there, or I just don't understand why they're struggling with that, or I just wish everyone could see the world the way I see it, then you don't understand your own desperate need for the new birth. Even if the new birth has happened to you, you don't understand, you know what, by God's grace, I am who I am. And if it weren't for God's grace, I would have nothing of good uh, in my heart to offer to Jesus. This passage says we can contribute nothing. So let's read it together. Those are just three introductory reasons why, as I was thinking through studying this passage, why it should be impactful to us. Um, so let's read this together. John 3, we'll read 1 through 10, and then we'll dive in. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Father, I pray that you would bless our time in your word. Uh, We could say the same things about ourselves. We don't understand how this is possible. We don't understand the mystery that's here. And it is a mystery. And what is explicitly revealed to us in scripture, we can hold and we can cling to and know. And what is mysterious, we we leave with you and we know that there is mystery. God, I pray that CBC would not be like Nicodemus where we would claim to be Christians and claim to be teachers of your gospel and yet we don't understand these things. Take us deeper into the glories of Calvary. Take us deeper into your sovereign grace in our lives so that we would taste, even just this morning, the glory of your amazing kindness, and prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper, staring at the kindness of Jesus Christ, knowing that apart from his work of redemption and regeneration, there is no way we could even be able to be here at this table to celebrate your love for us. 
We thank you for your love. Guide our time now and open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in your name. Amen. The last section that we came to in uh, chapter 2, if you go back to verse 23, starts by saying, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, that's Jesus, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself, that's the exact same word for believe in verse 23, Jesus was not believing in their belief. Why? Because he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he knew, he himself knew what was in man. Now, our, ch- our chapter breaks are artificial. Uh, the Bible, when it was written, uh, did not have those breaks. So the verses and the chapters were not there in the original. So the way that we know connections is through words. And the word now in verse 1 of chapter 3 is a very pregnant Greek word that connects whatever just preceded it. And it's saying, based on what I just said, I'm going to share an account that is important based on what I just said. And I want to show you there's two ways in which these stories intersect. There's two very important ways in which these last couple verses in chapter 2 intersect with these first couple verses of chapter 3. First, Jesus says that he is not entrusting himself to those who believe that he is somebody special. Um, because he knew all men. The first way that these two passages intersect is that word man. He knew all men, and then verse 1 of chapter 3, now there was a man. That's the first connection. There's a huge plurality of these men in verses 23 through 25 that believe Jesus, but don't truly believe him savingly. And there's a man just like that that John's going to single out and give us an account of. By the way, only John tells us about Nicodemus. The synoptic gospels don't mention him at all. So here we have this account only given to us by John. And in this account, the first tipping point to what John is trying to prove is this is a specific man who is a perfect character development of exactly what he just said. Somebody who believes that Jesus is sent by God, which is exactly what he's going to say. We know that you have come from God, verse 2, as a teacher For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And that's exactly why people were saying that back in verse 23. Many are believing in his name because they are observing his signs, which he was doing. And that's exactly what Nicodemus says. No one can do these signs that you do unless God's with him. So that's the first connection. The second connection between these two passages is when it says that Jesus knew all men and he knew what was in man. Without them even asking, without them even saying anything, he knew what was in man. Uh, When I was thinking about a title for this message, I think the title originally had two lines, and I thought, that's way too busy. That's too, like, Puritan-esque. We're getting too... So, honest to goodness, I don't even remember the title that I gave to you because I gave it a little bit earlier in the week. But the original title was something like, the most important question that was never truly asked but was answered even though it was never asked, or something like that. Um... Jesus is going to answer, drop down to verse, well, in verse 2. Nicodemus is going to say, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. There is no question in that. There is no, that's not an interrogative sentence. This is just the truth. It's declaring the truth. But verse 3, Jesus answered, 
Even though there's no question, Jesus answered a question. And his answer is the answer to the most important question that has ever been asked, but was never even asked. Why does Jesus answer a question that was never asked? Because Jesus knows what is in man. That's the second intersection of these two passages. Jesus knew what was in man, so much so that Nicodemus just states something, and Jesus says, I hear a question in that, and I know a question behind that. And he answers the question. So, that's by way of context for us. John is doing a marvelous work to connect us. And he's, by the way, he's going to do this uh, over the course of the next couple chapters. For now, it's Nicodemus. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, Jesus is going to know the heart and get to the heart, even though we would never have gotten where Jesus got if we had been in this situation. The next person he's going to get to is the Samaritan woman, chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Again, she's going to say things, and he's going to answer questions that she's not even asking. The third person is the Gentile official in chapter 4, verses 43 through 53. And then the fourth person is the man at the pool of Bethesda, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. All account after account after account after account of men who are very clearly saying, I have an issue, and Jesus is saying, that's not even the biggest issue. Jesus does this constantly. You guys remember in Mark chapter 2, the friends bring the paralyzed man. They drop him through the roof. Jesus goes over to him, and he opens his mouth, and the man is expecting to hear, Son, get up and walk. And Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The man thought he had a need, and it was a need. It wasn't the greatest need that he had. And so Jesus says, I know a greater need than you even realize you have. He's doing that here with Nicodemus. There was a man. Let's... Just go slowly through this. We're only going to get to uh, verse 3 this morning because I want to give us some time to reflect on the gospel and communion. Verse 1. Now there was a man, and he's a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the hyper-religious conservatives. Remember, they came up with hundreds of laws just for the Sabbath. You had to keep these laws in order to not break the Sabbath, even though God just clearly said, don't do work on the Sabbath. He didn't specify that beyond that. A couple places he did. But the Pharisees decided, you know, what? we are going to, and with good intention when it started, we're going to make some barriers here. We're going to set up some safety nets so that we can assure ourselves we are not going to break God's law. The problem is, since we all have legalistic hearts, those safety nets that were good at first with good intentions to protect their hearts from breaking God's law turned into uh, these are ways in which God now um, gives us his favor because we keep these laws, even though these aren't even God's laws. These are man-made laws. And second, you need to keep these man-made laws or else you're just disobeying God, which wasn't the case because God didn't make these laws. You guys remember some of these very crazy rules? Um, If you're a woman on the Sabbath, you were not allowed to look at a mirror. Um, They didn't really have glass. They just had shined metal. You weren't allowed to look in a mirror because you might be tempted on the Sabbath to pluck a gray hair or pluck an unsightly eyebrow hair or take care of something. And and because of that, the Pharisees said, you know, that would be work. We don't want to even tempt you to do work, so you're not even allowed to look at a mirror. Sabbath comes, Friday, sun's going down. We take the mirrors, put them flat on their faces so we don't even look at them. You weren't allowed to spit on the Sabbath because if you spit into the dirt, the force of your spit would create a little divot in the ground, and that would be um, digging a a hole, um, digging a a burrow into the ground. We weren't allowed to spit. We weren't allowed to wear false teeth on the Sabbath because that would be bearing a burden, and um, 
You weren't allowed to do that. There are so many rules that they had. And they kept all of them as much as they could, even to the detriment of not even keeping God's law. You guys remember Paul, Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees? He says, all of those things that I did, they're just filthy rags. They're excrement before God. They, they are just um, refuse. This is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's clean through and through. He's moral. He's ethical. He's prestigious. His name even is a, is a very prestigious name. Nico, Nike, overcome. Uh, Victor, conquer. Demas, people. So this is a ruler of the people. Nicodemus, his name just means victor over the people, ruler, conqueror of the people. And his name fits him well because he's a ruler of the Jews. That just means he's a part of the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 Jewish people that made up basically the Supreme Court in Israel. Um, Every single Jewish person in Israel had to answer to the jurisdiction of the 70 Sanhedrin, the 70 men on the, the Supreme Court of Israel. This man is a very clean man, a very prominent man, a very important man. Verse 2, he comes to Jesus by night, and he's going to speak to him. Now, there is so much that has been said about him coming to Jesus by night. What does it mean? I can give you a couple possibilities. It could mean that John is remembering an eyewitness account. It's an eyewitness testimony. And so this is just personally uh, reminiscing about something that took place. It's just to remind the reader that this is an account that's an eyewitness testimony. Or Jesus is saying this happened by night. He was obviously an eyewitness to it. It could be that. It could be, number two, that religious rulers debated so long that they would have to work into the night and then they would finally convene. And that's when Nicodemus had the first opportunity to go to Jesus. So he was working all day and uh, gets out of the Supreme Court and then goes talks to Jesus. Um, the most likely that I know people have heard before and said before is that he was scared of what the other Pharisees would have thought of him. So he came under the cover of darkness. That could be. Um, it also could be John's use of the word night, that he actually physically came at night, but that use of the word night or the use of the idea of darkness conveys spiritual night or spiritual darkness to say, this man, though he looks like he is saved, is actually filled with darkness in his heart. It could be that. We don't know what it means, except explicitly I can tell you this is what it means. It means that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and not by day. The sun was not out, it was asleep. And Nicodemus came to Jesus. And he says to him, Rabbi, which is a very gracious thing to say to Jesus for two reasons. Number one, Jesus is very young compared to Nicodemus. Most people think Nicodemus is twice as old as as Jesus. Nicodemus is probably late 50s, early 60s. Jesus is probably uh, early 30s, mid 30s. A young person was not really looked upon with respect or with authority. So for Nicodemus to say, you can be my teacher, is a very gracious, respectful thing to do. Um, The second reason why this is very important is because to be a rabbi, you had to go through a process. To be seen as a rabbi by the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the synagogues, by the Sanhedrin, you had to go through a process. It would be like trying to be a teacher here at Heritage. 
You can't just wake up one morning and say, you know, I think it'd be really cool to be a teacher, knock on a classroom door, open it up and say, what, what subject is this? Okay, I'll go ahead and teach it. Uh, principal's going to come by and say, where are your credentials? What, what have you done? Have you signed the contracts? Have you done the fingerprinting? Have you done everything you need to do to be here? Uh, similarly, rabbi, which just literally means teacher, they were going through the same process. And that's why when Jesus' disciples are calling him rabbi, the Pharisees hear that and they go, show us your union card. Uh, what are your credentials? How can you be a part of the rabbi elect that we, we didn't elect you? You didn't get your license from us. So for a Pharisee to say, I will submit to you even though you're younger and I will submit to you even though you didn't go through the process that we are telling you you need to go through is very respectful. It shows us that God is already working on his heart even though he is not saved at this moment. And he says this, we know, we, plural, he's speaking of all of the Pharisees, we know that you are a man sent by God. Why? Because of the signs that you're doing. That's plural too, even though John has only given us one sign, uh, the water turned to wine. John has also recorded that he was doing many signs in John chapter 2, verse 23. And then Nicodemus is saying, we're seeing all of those signs. And all of those signs are pointing to the fact that you are who you claim to be. You are Messiah. Um, that was the primary reason Jesus did miracles to begin with. Was he doing them because he loved people? Sure. Was he doing them because he had compassion? Absolutely. But he did miracles to prove that he was the son of God. Again, Mark chapter 2, paralyzed man. Pharisees say, only God can say, uh, only God can forgive sins. So you're blaspheming because you're claiming to be God by saying you have forgiven this man's sins. And that's when Jesus says, which is easier to say. Well, it's, it's easier to say this man's sins are forgiven. Um, because you can't tell if that's happened immediately. So, he says, so that you would know that my claim is true. I'm claiming to be God, and so that you would know that my claim is reality. I will say to this man, get up and walk. His miracles were primarily given, primarily acted, uh, for the purpose of validating the message that he is the Messiah. The Pharisees knew this. They knew he was the son of God. That's why they blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. You remember that, the whole unpardonable sin? The Pharisees blaspheme against the Spirit because they say, we know that this man is sent by God because God is working through him. But we don't want to believe that he's the son of God, so we have to figure out a way to say that the signs that he's doing are not pointing to the fact that he's the son of God. And the way they do that is they say that the Spirit's not doing them, the devil is doing the miracles. So... Nicodemus is just clearly saying what all of the Pharisees know. We know that you're a man come from God. You are a teacher. You are a prophet. You are somebody special because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And then Jesus answered. The Lord does not answer his words. The Lord answers his thoughts. How would you have answered Nicodemus? Somebody comes to you and says, man... You're just the best teacher. It's amazing. God's with you. It's obvious God's working through you. You are an amazing teacher. What's your response? Like, thank you. Praise the Lord. That's so encouraging. Thank you for your kind words. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God can mean several different things. For the sake of time right now, all you need to know is this means the eternal state, heaven. This, this means being in God's kingdom for all of eternity future. You cannot get into heaven unless you are born again. 
eternal life with God is only possible through the new birth. And this is a very interesting statement for Jesus to say for a number of different reasons. Um, Nicodemus is in the in crowd. He's with the people, the religious elite. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus says, you're not in my kingdom. You haven't been born again. You're not in my kingdom. He's, he's in the in crowd, but he has no place in the kingdom of God. It's a great implication for us. No matter how popular you are, or no matter how much authority you have in this life, if you are not known by God, it doesn't matter. Conversely, if you are outcast in this life in any way, but you are known by the God of the universe and the new birth has happened to you and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, it doesn't matter who hates you if God is with you. The question is, how do we get into that kingdom? It's a question that Nicodemus didn't explicitly answer or ask. It's a question that Nicodemus had in his heart. And it's a question that even by the way he's wording this, Jesus is knowing what his heart is asking. Nicodemus is asking, in essence, okay, we know that you are a man sent by God. What do we do next to follow you and enter into heaven? Um, Tell us what to do as we follow you. And frankly, is my acknowledging that you are a man sent by God enough? It's almost like Nicodemus is expecting to hear, oh, you recognize that I'm a man sent by God? Well, then you're in. And Jesus says, I say to you, truly, truly. Uh, Jesus says that 25 times in, in this gospel. Truly, truly. I'm telling you something for a matter of fact that is, is a paradigm shattering truth. Five times in this passage alone, we're going to see the the phrase born again. And he says it right here. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, literally it's born from above, above heaven is what births you again. Unless heaven is the one that births you, that gives you a new birth, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So the question, the most important question that anyone could ever ask is being asked by Nicodemus in his heart of hearts. And that question is, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus' answer, in essence, is the gates of heaven only open from the inside. You cannot do anything on the outside to knock as hard as you can, to force the doors open. If you want in, the person inside needs to let you in. If you want to get into the kingdom, you must be born again. There's no other way. That new birth must happen to us and not by us. Go back to John chapter 1. Nicodemus didn't know these words, but we do. John chapter 1, verse 12. Um, Jesus came to his own, his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. You could take all the middle section out and just say born of God, born of above, born from heaven. That's the new birth, right? In verse 13, the only way that you can become a child of God very clearly is to receive the right that God gives to you. So again, you are not earning that right. God's giving it to you. You believe which is even a gift from God uh, in and and through and post-regeneration. And you are born not by anything that you can do, but by God alone. So verses 12 through 13 in chapter 1 are the smaller, more theologically precise setting um, for what John 3 is going to say. 
Nicodemus asks, how do I get to heaven? And Jesus answers, um, you can't do anything. This is staggering to a Pharisee. This is staggering to a human. This is staggering to any other religion because every religion, the only thing that is different that sets our biblical Christianity apart from every other religion, the, the difference is every other religion has something that you do to earn your place in heaven. Be it huge or be it tiny, you do something. Biblical Christianity is the only, and I hate to use the word religion because religion just even connotes the fact that you're working, Uh, but biblical Christianity is the only thing that says if you try to earn heaven, if you try to do something to earn heaven, you'll lose it. You cannot earn it. And to a Pharisee, that would be absolutely devastating. He's been trying to earn God's favor all of his life. Look at all the things I've kept. Look at all the rules. Look at all the laws. Think of the rich young ruler. I've done all these things since my youth. What do I need to do to get to heaven to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, you have to be born again. What does that mean? You can't do anything. You can't. John Piper says, the declaration of Jesus that we must be born again is either deluded or devastating to the one who would be captain of his own soul. Not many biblical realities are better designed by God to reveal our helplessness in sin. D.A. Carson says, What must be seized from Jesus' insistence on the new birth as the prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom is the fact that this truth is applied to a man of the caliber of Nicodemus. If Nicodemus, with all of his knowledge, gifts, understanding, position, and integrity, cannot enter the promised kingdom by virtue of his standings and his works, What hope is there for anyone who seeks salvation along those lines? We can work as hard as we can to earn our place in the kingdom. We even have evangelicalism has a catchphrase of just do your best and God will do the rest. That betrays our understanding or our lack thereof of this passage. Our best is never good enough. There's a a great Arabic folk story to illustrate this. There's a, a young Arab that was traveling along the road on his donkey, and he came upon a a small fuzzy object lying in the road. He dismounts to look more closely, and he finds a sparrow lying on its back with its feet outstretched towards the sky. At first thought, he thinks, poor bird's dead. On closer investigation, he sees the bird's alive, and he starts talking with the bird. He says, bird, are you okay? And the sparrow says, yes, I'm fine. The young man says, what are you doing lying on your sky or lying on your back with your legs pointed towards the sky? What are you doing? The sparrow responds that he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling. So he's holding his legs up to support it. The young man replies, you surely don't think you're going to hold it up with those two scrawny legs, do you? And the sparrow, after a very solemn look, retorted, well, one does the best he can. And that's the reality of what Nicodemus is saying. Well, one does the best he can to earn God's favor. I know I can't fully, but I'm going to do the best I can. The reality is our best is never good enough. Nicodemus, what it is that you want to do, to have a list, to have steps to get to heaven, you can't do. Jesus never gives him any steps. Even the command that is down in verse 7 Uh, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That's not a command. That's not a do this. You must do this. That's just a declaration. You must is just a declaration. It's not an imperative. 
So where does that leave us this morning? (laughs) Hopeless? Helpless? There is nothing that we can do to cleanse ourselves. That's why Jesus is going to say the only way that you can be cleansed is by the washing of the water and through the Spirit. We'll talk about all these things and what they mean. But for us this morning, as introduction to this section of Scripture, the reality is very clear. We can do nothing to get to God on our own. That's why Jesus came. If you could do something to get to God, then Jesus died in vain. When we celebrate communion this morning, we need to celebrate communion with this understanding. The only way we could ever get to God is through his sacrifice on our behalf. And we must cling to that, hope in that, believe in that, and divest ourselves of any hope in our own goodness to earn God's favor. Father, I pray as we prepare for communion that you would be gracious to work in our hearts. Even as we sing, I pray that you would do a mighty work to remind us of the deep, deep love of Jesus that is vast, that is unmeasured, that is boundless, that is free. It's never earned. We could not do anything to gain it. And so we thank you for it, and we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the reality of the new birth and the hopelessness of our own condition apart from you, and then praise you for loving us.